I really thought Fabrizio was courageous the way he opened up to me about his struggle with mental health issues. And despite all the stigma, um, he is now so inspiring because he's telling his story in, in order to help others who are going through the same struggles that he did. This is Wake at Night. I'm Melissa Fleming. My brave colleagues here at UNHCR often work in situations of extreme conflict and danger. Many are driven by their desire to help the world's most vulnerable people. But they are not superheroes. We are all human beings. And even though they've chosen to put themselves in harm's way to help refugees, they can end up paying a terrible price. Every minute we had the shells going into Karajda and it was like clockwork. Minute after minute after minute, the whole night. And we were all convinced that one side or the other was going to come and kill us in the night. And I spent half the night praying that I would stay alive and the other half praying that I would suffer a quick death. Fabrizio Hochschild has reached one of the highest positions in the United Nations, but he's managed this achievement while learning to deal with the trauma he suffered while experiencing the horrors of the war in Bosnia in the 1990s. At times, he thought it would cost him his career, but now he champions mental health care within the UN. It's a far cry from the start of his career working for UNHCR in Sudan in the late 1980s. At the time, he says, he thought he was invulnerable. I was a field officer, and in those days, field officers, when they joined UNHCR, were issued with a large aluminium box, which had, among other things, a tent in it. And as a UNHCR field officer, you were expected to go out and sleep in, in the camps. And we did that, not, not all the time. It was remote. Um, I, went to, I went to work on a horse. Um, you went to work on a horse? I went to work on a horse. I had uh -huh. a pet hyena at home. I, I took in uh, orphans um, from, from Khartoum. There was no running water. The water came on the back of, uh, of donkeys. There was no electricity. I had a little solar lantern, which was considered a, a huge new invention then. You know, we worked hard, we, we enjoyed ourselves, and we, we were close to, to the beneficiaries we worked with. And, and it was very, it was, it was very fulfilling. And then I, you're I smiling was, when you're talking about this. Is this a period of your life that you really look well, back they say fondly? That, they say that priests always have the best memories of their first parish, and I guess it's a bit like that. But and then I was I was sent by UNHCR down to South Sudan to Juba, where the senior head of office had been attacked by the refugees, so they had to pull him out. And, and I went down there, and the only, I first realized that a war was going on when the chartered plane that, uh, that, that was UNHCR hired to take me there um, started going into a nose spin over Juba. And when I asked the pilot if something was wrong, he said, no, not at all. We do this so we're not shot at. And then, then I learned that Juba was actually under siege and that I was going to a place under siege. And I was, I was in, I was 25 or 26, and the town was under, under shelling, and, and that was my first exposure to conflict. Did um, you feel yourself endangered? 
Well, in a very abstract way, but I never felt threatened. The shelling was was regular, but I felt, I mean, fear is is very unpredictable, and and I must say, I I I didn't feel it, even though uh, obviously shells were falling, so there was a level of danger, and and people were being killed, and the the town was full of refugees. They were starving. Everybody was convinced at that stage that the town would be overrun. But the convoys kept running, and I had a lot of support from people in Khartoum. Um, I would I was on the radio with them every day, and we had this strange strange code that um, uh, I think dancing meant meant deaths. So if there was a lot of dancing, it meant there'd been uh, a lot of deaths, and disco was shelling. So if the disco was intense, it meant there was. So we'd have these bizarre radio conversations with Khartoum that to anybody uh, listening in sounded uh, like we were describing party after party, but in fact referred to, to the rather sad state of what was going on. But This we was a code you invented? This was a code we invented. It was invented before I came. And then there was one time while I was there when Juba um, was quite literally infested overnight by literally millions of white butterflies. And I woke up and all the, the mosquito netting of the house I was living in was just coated in white butterflies. I mean, literally in the millions. And it was quite uh, astonishing. And at the same time, Juba that day had been relatively quiet. So when I got on the, the radio for my daily call with Khartoum, they asked me what was happening. And I said, we have a, an infestation of white butterflies. And then I got all sorts of messages saying, well, that's code for what? What? what you know, they were convinced <laughs> I was transmitting some big secret when in, in that case, it was actually quite literal. Mm. But yeah, I was but I was very lucky. I was very young. I was given a lot of responsibility. And I worked with some amazing people, national staff um, and and refugees. Do you think that anything that you witnessed there in Juba had an effect on you that you were not acknowledging then, but might have come back accumulatively um, to haunt you later? Look, I, I was very young. From there, I went to UNRWA and I worked during the first intifada in the occupied territories. And I was exposed to, I mean, usually it was tear gas and rubber bullets, but often it was, sometimes it was live fire. And I grew convinced that these things didn't affect me, that uh, somehow I was constitutionally made to work in, in conflict situations. Two things. One, that working under the UN flag, first for UNHCR, then UNRWA, somehow afforded me a degree of protection. And at the same time, I thought that my particular psychology or my particular constitution was such that I thrived in those circumstances that... Um, circumstances of danger. Circumstances of danger, that I didn't feel the danger, I didn't feel th uh, personal threat, and that it, if anything, made me more more productive. I could I could do more, I could achieve more. So, I mean, uh, there was one case in, in a, an encounter between um, stone throwers and Israeli soldiers in, in Nablus, where a young girl was shot in the eye, and I rushed her to hospital and came back, And the moment I drove into the camp, um, the Palestinians threw stones at my vehicle because they felt I'd, I'd abandoned them. So they stoned my car, all the windows were broken. 
And despite that, I had a, I did feel fairly impervious. I did feel highly motivated. And th that sense of, of invulnerability, um, you know, later in Bosnia, um, I learned in a way that was extremely painful for me, was, was a complete delusion. Um, perhaps a partially necessary self-delusion to, to work in such circumstances. But I was stripped of it brutally later in Bosnia. When you said you thought that you were kind of invulnerable and impervious uh, to the danger, do you think it was perhaps adrenaline that was giving you that sense? No, there's certainly some form of, of chemical high produced by the body in, in situations of danger. We did help people, save people, um, and we were not changing the circumstances. We were not getting to the root causes, but we were certainly diminishing and alleviating the suffering. So I think that sense of mission, that sense of purpose, which was rewarded at times by success, gave one an incredible sense of purpose that, that made one sort of oblivious to what was happening around one. I mean, it, it was never, and it should never be about us. I mean, whatever danger we were exposed to, the, the, the people we were working for were exposed to, to much greater danger. In 1991, uh, you were sent to Bosnia during the height of the breakup of Yugoslavia. But you were in Sarajevo, deployed in Sarajevo, when the war broke out, and that was in around April 1992. Uh, this was to be a real life-changing experience for you. Can you just describe what you remember about you know, what you were witnessing, what you were seeing, how you were living. I think what was so impactful about Bosnia for, for many of us, not just for me, um, was that we were deployed there before the war, but the UNITA established its main office in Sarajevo because it was neutral between the Serbs and the Croats. And there were many still saying, although the winds of war were, were blowing, there was many still saying in early 1992, it cannot happen here. We have centuries of living together as Serbs, Croats, and, Bos and Bosnians. So we're somehow, it won't happen here. So we, we thought we were safe. And then it happened. It unfolded before our eyes. We were there when roadblocks started being erected. We were there when the Serbs started moving tanks into the town. And you, and you saw this yourself. Yes, we saw that. We had one of our vehicles crashed into a tank that... Uh, that was coming down one of the streets. So we saw all this unfolding. And, and what was worse is we had made friends with many Bosnians. They had the same interests uh, as us. We went to the theater together. We went to movies together. It, it was very different from other situations I'd been in when the war had been going on and you came in as a, as a foreigner and you felt quite detached. Here, um, these were people who were culturally quite quite close to me. And where the war was starting before our eyes, and there was nothing we could do about it. So there was a, there was a level of association, um, which I hadn't felt uh, previously. And UNHCR mounted a massive humanitarian operation. What was your job at that time? Well, I, I was head of the office in Sarajevo. We were trying to keep up a supply line going through the front lines from, from Belgrade. The, the airport closed um, after tanks took up position on the runway. All the roads um, in and out of the town became front lines where there was fighting. 
I stayed in three hotels. Each of the hotels I had to evacuate under shell fire after they caught fire. Uh, and there was already tremendous anxiety uh, about food. There were displaced people in the town. People didn't go out already because of sniper fire. So as UNHCR, we were trying to show we were close to the population. So we would, we would walk around in downtown Bosnia and help people cross the roads and cross the roads with them under sniper fire. And we didn't wear flak jackets because the people didn't wear flak jackets. So we didn't want to be different from the people. And there was no UN security service um, in those days. So there was nobody telling us what we were allowed to do or, or, or not allowed to do. And we felt very strongly we, we had to be close to the people. We had to show that we were exposing ourselves to the same danger they were exposed to. Uh, so that was the situation before the... the Can the, you just d describe one of those days maybe where you went out? What was it like? What did you see? Well, at that point, this was before the airport opened. We were um, trying to establish a network of distribution points for the food that we hoped would come in with the with the airlift. And so... My colleague, Vesna Vukovic, and myself, we wanted to go into the center of town to look at potential distribution spots. We were sleeping in our office um, at the, the so-called PTT building, the, the main UN headquarters in Sarajevo. And we told um, the, the duty officer in, in the ops room that we were, we were going to go downtown. And he said immediately, he was an incredibly nice um, Kenyan uh, officer, He offered to organize an Umprofor armored vehicle for us because the main route into town was notorious for, for sniper fire. But we were trying to distinguish ourselves from the UN peacekeeping force. So we insisted on going in our soft skin, I mean, i.e. non-bulletproof UN vehicle. And then I remember a Danish uh, military observer insisting that we take his flak jacket and then Vesna and myself um, fighting over who should have it because we each wanted the other one to put it on. And then we decided that neither of us would, would, would have it because we would not look right among the population wearing flak jackets when they had none. So we drove into town, we parked, and then we started walking. You know, there was sniper every time you crossed the street. People would be fired at and people would hide at the corner of the, I mean, crouch um, at the corner of the building, you know, women with children. You did not see many men. I mean, the men were all on the front or had left. So it was a town populated by women and children. So you'd see mainly uh, elderly uh, or, or young mothers crouching at street corners and waiting for a moment for the firing to stop and then rushing in a sprint across the street. And that was happening at every every um, street corner and you would also see people who who had not made it you would see bodies and blood in the middle of the street and then somebody would pluck up the courage to try and recuperate the the bodies and that was very it was very moving but we wanted to be seen um, that we as UNHCR were exposing ourselves to the same danger that we were there with the people and we felt that was also important for us to have the support of, of the people and I think it, it turned out to be right because when we got the distribution system moving we could move around the town like none other.
So there was this sense that we were that we were achieving many things, and we got through places under fire, and and still managed to deliver the aid, and still managed to to see the distribution happen, and uh, and we thought we were breaking the siege, and of course we were not. Was there ever a transition here during this very intense time, um, where you started to feel fear for your own self? in your own safety up until that point and i i have to say it naively stupidly i i did not at any moment feel frightened even when bullets were hitting our vehicles as happened happened on a number of occasions even when i saw people badly injured or killed um, nearby I still had this sense of invulnerability uh, associated with a not very healthy mental state and associated with with the fact that I was there with the UN and so I was somehow protected. I mean there was one incident that left me left me very very disturbed um um and occurred shortly before my my mindset did did change fairly radically, and that was the the soldiers were all living off ration packs, or mostly living off ration packs, and the French had, unsurprisingly, the best ration packs. And among other things, like rabbit, ragout, um, or boeuf bourguignon, they had always had sweets, nougat, in them, and many of the soldiers didn't eat the sweets, and they would collect them, and then every evening... Um, a group of young adolescents would come to the to the PTT building, and the soldiers would distribute this, the sweets they'd saved from their from their ration packs. And once uh, I was eating, in fact, in the cafeteria, and this was happening just at the corner of the building, maybe fifty meters from where I was sitting. Um, and we had shelling, which was not an uncommon uh, sound, so it didn't cause any alarm, except for it seemed unusually close. But that wasn't that uncommon either. And then we heard some incredible schemes, and that was uncommon. And so we rushed to see what was happening, and then we saw that, uh, and the shells were still coming in as we were rushing um, to see what had happened that the um, shells had been targeted at this group of adolescents that were there to collect their sweets. And about three or four shells had fallen right in the middle of the group. And there were shredded adolescent bodies um, uh, around. And there were some that would had been injured, were still alive, but, but couldn't move because of their injuries. And then some soldiers and myself um, uh, rushed out with, with stretchers. All the stairways in the PTT building had stretchers aligned on them. So we grabbed these stretchers and we rushed out of the PTT building to pick up um, those who were, who were still alive. And we brought in, I don't know, half a dozen survivors. And we rushed them down. In the basement was an emergency operating room, and we brought them in there. Um, and then the, the doctors, I think they were Canadian, there was also a British doctor, did their utmost to, 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 to save them. And that was very disturbing, seeing 
I, you know, it was a massacre of children, and um, and it happened before my eyes, and um, then I began to wonder um, about our mission. And then that evening, after the darkness fell, and thus a certain safety from sniper fire, if not from shelling, some of the parents of the adolescents came to the PTT to find out what had happened to their children. And since we were the humanitarians, um, they were all referred to us. And so I had to talk to the, myself and, and Vesna, and by that time I think we had a few other staff, um, these incredibly brave young Bosnian women. We had to talk to the parents and we had to try and comfort them. Having to talk, having seen their children shredded, and then having to to sound hopeful or reassuring to to their mothers and fathers, who you know, often it was Bosnian families were small, at least in Sarajevo, their only child. It was that that left me that left me wondering about that left me wondering about the purpose of why we were there. And because it, it just had become so... Well, <laughs> you know, the world was pushing forward the humanitarian response as the solution to the Bosnian problem. And then that incident began to open my eyes to the fact that what was needed was not the distribution of aid, but a completely different type of intervention that silenced the guns but it took the world four or five years and thousands of deaths and hundreds of thousands of uprooted and destroyed lives to wake up to the need for what finally worked which was military intervention but I think I had some sort of realization that moment after picking up the bodies of children that there was a certain element of futility in what we were doing how did that affect you personally no it left me sort of stunned and wondering but i think with the benefit of hindsight the worst was we didn't really talk about these things among ourselves i mean you know every day by that point the UNHCR team was bigger the airlift had begun so we had staff going out around the town and every day witnessing. There was not a day without an incident. There was not a day without deaths being seen, without injured being seen, without without narrow misses to our own team. And these were told, these stories were shared, but there was no discussion about the emotions that each of us were going through. And we did believe in our mission and so I wandered around the PTT building in the dark a bit stunned I told my staff to stay away from the scene I didn't want them to see the the remains that were still on the street um, but we didn't really talk about it um, and and the next day we went back to work and at that time my big ambition was was to take a convoy to eastern Bosnia which was also cut off by the fighting when no aid was going all the aid was going to Sarajevo no aid was going to any other part of war affected Bosnia at that point so we went back to that and, and you did uh, and that was a also in hindsight a pivotal day 
in your life when you did take that convoy from Sarajevo to the eastern Bosnian city of Garashti. What happened that day and, and what did you see? Mm-hmm. Well, after after weeks of, of negotiating with, with Karadzic and Mladic, they kept telling us, we'll let you go to Garashti, but we want to clean up there first. And we knew the implications of what cleanup meant. But finally, after a lot of insistence, they gave us permission to try and go. And we, it took us a long time to get fairly close to the town. We had an escort um, from, from Umprafor. We had about, I don't know, a dozen French soldiers, two French armored personnel carriers, a few military observers, a British military doctor, Colonel, the first British woman doctor in the elite lifeguards regiment. Um, she was called Vanessa Lloyd Davis. And we, we set out for Garajde, and I was accompanied by a young, one of these young women of outstanding courage called Una Sekeres, and a, a WHO doctor, a senior WHO doctor. We crossed a number of front lines. We went through towns that were battle scenes on the way there. Then we arrived at a, at a mountain track where there was a Serb checkpoint and we had to go up this mountain track and then down the other side into Garajde. And the Serbs told us not to go on. The track was, was dangerous. They thought people had been killed on it and they, it was far too dangerous for us to go up it. And we thought this was just a ruse to stop us bringing aid to Garajde. And apart from that, it was night was falling, it was dusk, and we thought it would be, there was nowhere safe. We'd been under fire almost constantly along the way. So staying where we are wasn't really an option. So we moved on and um, very quickly on the track, we came across um, three dead Serbs soldiers um, and the WH doctor looked at the bodies and said they'd been killed in the last 20 minutes and we put them in the back of my car and then we went we drove on and as we drove on we heard um, automatic weapon fire behind us quite close we, we had no way of telling if it was aimed at us or it was another confrontation and then we drove on, and then um, a few minutes up the track, and we was, it was a narrow track, very heavy woodland on either side. I suddenly felt, I suddenly, my, there was a massive explosion, and my vehicle, which was a soft skin, I mean, a, not a bulletproof vehicle, was suddenly covered in dirt. And I thought a mortar had been shot at us. So I backed down immediately to get out of the life of the, the line of fire. And then I saw this in front of me was this armored personnel carrier. And it, these weigh 12 tons. Um, I mean, they're massive machines. And it was tossed in the air like a ball. And it literally somersaulted in front of me and landed on its back um, as if it, you know, had been a light object that um, and then there was heavy firing and so we all I jumped out of my vehicle as others did in the convoy and we we crouched at the side of the road in the woods waiting for the firing to subside Um, 
And the doctor who was with us turned to me and he said, um, I would be very surprised if anybody's still alive in that armor personnel carrier. And that for me was, uh, that moment changed an awful lot because I had, when we first heard the fire starting, I'd asked Una to go into the APC because I felt she'd be safer in the APC than in my soft skin vehicle. So I had this vision of, of everybody in the APC being dead, including Una, um, who was my, my, um, my uh, local staff member and who was there because I'd asked her to come. Um, so I began to feel responsible for, for death. Um, then the sub after about, then the firing subsided. The soldiers told us we had to wait um, 20 minutes in case it started again, in case they were just waiting for us to come out to shoot us. So we had the worst wait of my life. We didn't wait the 20 minutes, but I don't know. I don't know how long we waited, but then we went out. We opened the APC and everybody came out alive. Um, Una had, had a wound to her head because she'd been the one person in the APC that was not wearing a helmet when it, when it turned over. But the APC had hit an anti-tank mine and uh, French military engineering had saved everybody's life. Um, but then the APC was blocking the road, so we couldn't move on. We used the other APC to get it off the road so we could move on. And then um, we started moving again. And then we, you know, by that point, we were all feeling very uh, vulnerable. By that time, it was almost completely dark. And then as soon as we began to move again, the truck that was behind my vehicle hit another landmine. And then the truck couldn't move. Um, and we were not going to move um, partially. So we were stuck there for the night. And um, we were all convinced um, that we would probably die that night. And we were trying to get through to Sarajevo to tell them what was going on. The radio wasn't working. as It was the days where the only communication was by HF radios. And we were having a huge difficulty getting through. Um, we piled into the remaining APC because we thought we'd be safest there. And then throughout the night, we had the shelling of Garajda. Every minute, we had the shells going into Garajda. And it was like clockwork. Minute after minute after minute, the whole night. And then there was still firing. There was still some sporadic automatic weapon fire near us, enough to make us feel nervous. And we were all convinced that one side or the other was going to come and kill us in the night. And I spent half the night praying that I would stay alive and the other half praying that I would suffer a quick death and that there wouldn't be pain and I wouldn't be left injured like I'd seen the adolescents injured a few days before, that there'd be a quick and easy death. And, and I think that night many of us felt similar to me. But then dawn came and we were alive and there hadn't been an attack by the night and there was an incredible British corporal who accompanied this Vanessa Lloyd Davis. Vanessa Lloyd Davis who herself by that point we had a Danish colonel who was with us and you know all the soldiers were showing fear. One of them had started screaming in the night that he hadn't signed up for this, that he didn't want to die. So the military command had rather fallen apart and Vanessa who was very brave 
I think, uh, or showed the most courage among us, she sort of assumed command. And then this corporal made us tea um, on a little stove, and he laced the tea with Valium, which um, was the best tea I've ever tasted. And and with daylight, we all felt better. We felt relieved. And then um, and then on the mountain top um, was a Serb base, the, the base we'd heard shelling into the town all night. And they um, sent down a tank um, that came and dragged up our, our, our truck. And we were then um, with the Serbs at the top. And then um, I went off to a little pool in the forest um, and again, you know, after all this terror, there was this sort of idyll of standing in a Bosnian forest in front of a little pool. And I washed my face and I felt the clear water on my face and, and the touch of the cold water on my skin awaking me. And I suddenly heard birdsong. And I, I've never felt before or after so grateful and so glad to be alive. And after that time, that was the end of the time in my life when I felt invulnerable. And I, I, I'd felt during that night, I'd felt, I mean, it was almost a physical sensation of my mental defenses being stripped away. Um, and during that night, I, beyond a sense of, of my own vulnerability, I, I had this incredible sense of guilt that this convoy was my idea. And not only had I, had I overrated my own invulnerability but worse I'd, I'd exposed so many people to, to the possibility of death and it had been uh, you know what right did I have to do that and I began to feel an incredible sense of guilt at, at, at having put so many others lives at risk um, for, for, for my mission um, and those feelings of guilt and, and vulnerability you know were, were, were to grow worse with time and were to, to pursue me but that moment washing my face I felt incredibly glad to be and grateful to be alive and memories of that gratitude for life and how I felt having reached the top of the mountain alive after that night washing my face surrounded by trees listening to birdsong that memory sustained me when I had very, very dark thoughts um, later on as a result of, of that experience. But anyway, then we, Sarajevo sent us a very well-equipped um, convoy of, um, I think they were French, they were certainly French soldiers, I think from a parachute regiment. So we spent, and they came and, and, and rescued that. But, us, but after that, my whole, I mean, the unit operation went on, didn't stop. Um, a month or so later, a colleague, Larry Hollingsworth, succeeded where I'd failed and got a convoy through to Garajde. But everything changed for me after that. <laughs> have you have you described this in this in such detail publicly before? Fabrizio, what what happened to you after you you noticed everything changed? You went back to Sarajevo, and then you started noticing things happening in your mind. I went. I got back to Sarajevo. Of course, Sarajevo hadn't changed. It was the same place. The shelling was was still going on. People were being still shot at. But whereas I'd been oblivious to that, 
everybody used to joke that I would sleep through every night, no matter how bad the shelling, every time a shell fell, I, I felt it. I felt it in my skin. I felt shaken. And I walked around the PTT building with a sense that everybody was going to die, that I was going to die, that everybody was going to die. And I had, I had these intrusive thoughts of, of death of, um, that, that didn't leave me. And I, and I just... And then I realized, you know, we're, we're, we're not invulnerable. The, the, the UN flag means nothing. We can be hurt like anybody else. And it went further. I mean, it, you know, it was a physical sensation. And so I started being very scared. And I was scared of everything. And I was scared for myself. I was scared for the staff. And I felt I couldn't go on. Um, and I stayed, I stayed in Did Surrey. Did you talk to anybody No, about there was it. nobody to talk to. And, and you, I didn't this want was, to. These feelings were just completely yes, new to you. Yes, and I was ashamed. You. you didn't know how it to deal. It was new. And to be honest, I was also ashamed of the, fear, the feelings. I was ashamed of my fear. And I was the head of the office. And, you know, the staff expected me, saw me as the leader. They had told me they drew strength from my, from my sense of purpose and mission. And I didn't, and I was too ashamed. I mean, I, I, I felt ashamed of everything. I felt ashamed of myself for being so full of fear. I felt ashamed of having not made it for to Garage Day. I felt ashamed at, at having exposed other people's lives um, in, in the process. And I just, I grew paralyzed by fear. And then I, so after about a week, I left, I left um, Sarajevo and I'd been there for a couple of months. Incidentally, you know, at that time, the the um, the French troops were rotating every three weeks because three weeks was felt the acceptable period for the French army to expose their troops to that level of danger. In UNHCR, we were put there until we dropped. I mean, we wanted to be there until we dropped. It's not that we were put there. I don't. That's unfair to the institution because any one of us at any point could say we want to leave and they let us leave. But we, we decided to stay till we dropped. But I left. I left. I'd been there a couple of months and I left. I went to Zagreb. And, and this shame and guilt followed me. Um, and I, I, I worked in, uh, in, in Zagreb. I, I was meant to go back to Sarajevo and I just couldn't. I couldn't face it. I, I, I had sleepless night after sleepless night and I felt deep shame at abandoning the staff there, at abandoning the town, at, at not doing what, I, what I'd been so convinced was, was my purpose. And, but I couldn't face. I couldn't face getting on a plane and facing that shelling again and facing the the threat again i mean i'd lost any sense of 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 invulnerability um but did anyone did you it even occur to you that you might what you might be experiencing was trauma no no it just the only thing that occurred to me was that i was a weak and a failure um and i did get on a plane in the end and the plane midair, halfway to Sarajevo, and I was praying. I was I was doing everything to try and get rid of my fear, and uh, because I just thought I was going to fall to bits if I landed in Sarajevo. And then halfway there, the 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 the, the pilot turned to us, and these were these C-130s military planes. We were strapped to the side, and said, "The the the airport is under heavy shelling. I have to turn around." And I took that as a sign of fate that I was not meant to go back to Sarajevo. And then I, I never tried again. But I went on working in the area. I went, 
I got sent to Split to head the office there. And from Split, we were mounting a major um, land operation into central Bosnia. And I would go occasionally into Mostar to test whether I was still scared of, of, of fire um, and, and shelling. Um, but, but I felt it when I went to Mostar. I've still felt it. It wasn't just that I felt scared and guilty, scared in, in combat and guilty when out of it. Um, I began having all sorts of intrusive thoughts um, during the day and I, uh, I started feeling panic for, no, for absolutely no reason. And then I saw, you know, I plucked at my courage because I was so ashamed of how I was feeling and I thought I was literally going crazy um, and felt full of self-recrimination and I saw a British forces doctor who told me um, that yes I had post-traumatic stress disorder and that was the first time I heard it. Um, You'd never heard of that condition I'd before? Of, I'd never heard of that condition before and he he diagnosed it with me, he gave me some Immediately? Valium. Immediately. When I described Soldiers are used to this. Well, he, he was used to that. Although this was in, when was it, 92? And I mean, I think the PTSD diagnosis was not, was at least with those letters. I mean, obviously, the phenomenon was written about in one way or another since there have been wars, but that actual, those letters and that designation was only a few years old. But the doctor saw it and he, he gave me Valium, which, which helped. And and then I went on I went on working, but I'd worked by that stage about a full year, nonstop, um, you know, eighteen-hour days, sleeping on the office floor. So I was due to go on leave. So I went on leave. Well, before that, um, what prompted me to see to see the doctor was that I'd always been good public speaking and I had had I was used a lot to do presentations to diplomats um, on what UNHCR was doing and how the war and we were a big source of information because we were the only ones in Bosnia operating when the place was uh, at war and I stood up to give my normal briefing and I prepared it and I prepared everything perfectly and I was describing I was describing the war I was describing the shelling I was describing UNHCR's operations and in the middle of it, I was just overwhelmed by emotion. I mean, I just, I, I wanted to break down in tears. And I just had all was over flooded in my mind by all the dead and wounded I'd seen. And I was choking. And I, I it was a full-fledged panic attack, um, which I'd never, I'd never really had in that form before. And it was happening in the safety of, a, of the Hyatt Hotel conference room in Belgrade where there was clearly no danger but all I felt was death and danger and I couldn't breathe and I had to stop and and that that was when I was convinced I was losing my mind and then I went back to split I saw a doctor he diagnosed PTSD he gave me Valium and after that but the there was no prescription to get any kind of therapy no 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 and then I, um, short, I mean, a couple of weeks after that, I, I went on working, I struggled. Um, and then I went on leave and I was convinced, I had this idea that all I needed was a bit of a rest, that I'd overworked myself and with rest I would get better. And the truth is what, what happened then was, was awful because when I went on leave and I was outside the context of work and I was not being driven by 
an incredibly supportive group of, of colleagues and driven by a mission that we were still fighting for, um, my whole world went to bits and, and everything became a threat. And I, I, could, I could not cross the street without feeling intense danger. I, 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 I had constant intrusive thoughts related to injury and death. Um, I had panic attacks for, for apparently no reason at every moment. And I, I sort of went to bits. Um, the volume was not... Well, I'd, start, I'd used up. The, I mean, he was very. He wasn't very generous in the amount of Valium he gave me, and I'd used it up by then. And then I went home to Chile, and and then in Chile I started seeing um, a psychiatrist, and um, which I also felt was sort of a shameful thing to do, but I felt I had no choice, and I had a lot of support from my family, um, uh, an aunt whom I lived with there, who was like a mother to me. And um, I got well enough to go back to work. And I, by then, I got offered a post in, in headquarters in Geneva. But I was still, I was still very much on edge. I, I still had great difficulty speaking without being overcome by, by fear. And when I say speaking, I mean even saying good morning to people, even ordering a sandwich in a restaurant. To be honest, I felt I was walking on a narrow precipice with insanity on one side of it and that I was could slip at any moment on any day because I was having these panic attacks without reason all the time and and I had no control over it and part of it was this I think what occurred that night in the woods in this minefield an ambush site was a total loss of control and for the first time, I was not in control. And likewise, I felt I had lost control of my mind and that my mind could do anything it wished with me. And I I could... So I, I felt I wouldn't be able to... Uh, I wasn't sure if I'd be able to work, how long I'd be able to work. And I remember having an argument with uh, Duncan Barclay, who was then, uh, now retired, was a, a senior human resource officer here. And he said, you realize, Fabrizio, you're now entitled to a to a three-year contract. You've had your two-year contract, you're now entitled to a three-year contract. And I told him, Duncan, don't give me more than a year's contract because I don't think, I'm not sure I'll be able to manage. Um, and so, so yeah, so I talked to people in personnel. They were supportive. I talked to the US, the medical service here and they were supportive. And I had, a, uh, I was very lucky. I had an incredible um, psychiatrist and through through years of of, of therapy, um, years, yes, yes, I got better. So but I you spent, thought at that time that it was? Did you think that it was going to be a condition that you would have to live with for as long as no, you? No, I never thought. But I realized by then that there was no quick cure, um, and the cure was very very slow. And then, you know, here they they wanted me to become more involved in Bosnia issues because I knew. I knew the file intimately, but I could not pick up a report from Bosnia without beginning to shake. I couldn't deal with any news from Bosnia. It was hard. And then I felt this life is, is probably not for me. I took um, leave of absence, so to get more or less together. And then I went off to Chile with the, with the idea of, of becoming a farmer there. Um, a farmer? A farmer and a writer. My father had died and I 
had some inheritance. So I went off and I found a place in a very poor part of Chile, in a very dry part of Chile, and I had this, this vision of uh, finding water and, and bringing prosperity to the, this, this impoverished valley. So I spent an awful lot of money, most of my inheritance, um, looking for water and found none. So my great project of becoming a farmer um, did not work out, but it was a great experience and I'm very grateful I did it. And I become nostalgic for the UN and nostalgic for this sort of work. And the writing was not a massive success either. So after about a year and a half, I came back to UNHCR. And I was still intent. I felt if I came back to this life, I had to be able to work in conflict areas. I could not be in this, in this without being able to go back to conflict. And then progressively over the years, I exposed myself more and more to conflict. I was to Did you feel able. like you were almost regaining your no, young then self? I, then I oh. saw I, I, I had regained a healthy degree of, a sufficient degree of courage to go back to those situations. And then later I worked, I mean, my work went on in many, in many different areas, some of them in conflict, and I was okay. But, but the intrusive thoughts, the, the most durable symptom was this inability to speak in public, because every time I wanted to, I would be assailed by, by, by memories, I think, mm. because it was linked to my first panic attack. So that was the most durable symptom. And that took literally 22 years or 20 years of, of work, of therapy, of all sorts of things to, to, to overcome. But I mean, you know, there is post-traumatic growth. I think I grew wiser, I grew more mature, I grew much more much more aware of my own limitations and, and you know, probably a healthy degree, much more modest. Just tell me, because during this time you did overcome the kind of shame that you were feeling and you did open up to some people, to some colleagues about what you were going through. Did you feel, though, that there was a stigma attached to this being a mental health problem rather than maybe a physical uh, health issue. Yeah, I mean, I felt there was a stigma attached. As I've said, I think the worst stigma came from myself, that I felt weak. I felt I was a failure. You know, my progress was very uneven. I would have, I would fall back into very vulnerable states um, where I would be assailed again by panic attacks. So I continued to think of myself as somebody who was at the border of mental illness or mental disability because periodically the my vulnerability would come back with a force so i felt i was weak i felt i had a problem i didn't talk to others because uh, i mean i talked to friends uh, and to some colleagues but i i didn't let it be known broadly because I thought it would affect my career. Um, and I didn't want to be told that I couldn't go to this place or, or that place. And I didn't want to be perceived as someone who, who was weak or damaged, damaged goods. Um, uh, I didn't want to be perceived by others as I tended to perceive myself, to be quite frankly. And so... So did you feel like you were putting on an act in some... Yes, I did. I did. I felt, I felt at times that I was a bit of a fraud, that I was faking it. And then later when I was much better, I mean, I worked in personnel. I was in charge of all field personnel in um, civilian field personnel in peacekeeping missions. And of course, many of the people I, I was there to support 
came with terrible signs of post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, in Maza Sharif, um, there was an attack on, on the UN compound, which left, I think, 11 people dead in, in 2011. And I dealt with, with many of the survivors. And what did you counsel them to do? No, I counseled them to speak up and I counseled them to see counselors, but they were all worried. Uh, I mean, I remember one colleague who'd literally seen the head of one of her colleagues that had been hit in the attack roll in front of her as she came out of a shelter. I told them that they had to get counseling, and they, but they were all very nervous about their, their contracts. And in peacekeeping, it's bad. I think UNHCR is a little more responsible. But in peacekeeping, many people have very short-term contracts. So everybody was very worried about owning up um, to any sort of mental vulnerability uh, because they were, they were convinced it would have uh, a negative effect on their, on their contracts. You know, it's st people still fear that stigma. I think things have improved, but I think we still um, have a long way to go. Could you describe to what extent friendship and, and perhaps marriage and family was important to you in this process of stabilizing yourself? I got married quite a bit later after what I've described, but I, I kept on having uh, a, a life that took me to many different places and at times exposed me to new conflict situations. And my, my family, my wife, and later my children were always very, very supportive. And that did provide uh, me a reference point. And 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 support but you know most of the drama was in my own head and any form of mental illness makes people incredibly isolated and lonely not least because it's very hard to describe to others who who haven't experienced it what one goes through and not least because one is also self-isolating and and i think that's also the problem that because of the stigma people don't reach out and you cannot rely on people who have serious mental problems or, or PTSD to step forward um, because I think one's first reaction is to huddle in a corner and to go into a fetal position under bed covers and, and hope it all goes away or the world stops or that one will die. So one needs colleagues to be attentive and one needs friends to be attentive, one needs family to be attentive and to reach out and one needs family, friends are wonderful but they are not health professionals and, and you need to get into the hands of proper health professionals. You recently chose to speak about this in a video message that was sent to all UN staff. Why did you do that? Well, that, I mean, that wasn't easy for me because... You know, I grew up in a culture where any form of exposing oneself is, is deemed inappropriate. But I've been incredibly fortunate in my career, and I'm relatively senior now. And so I wanted to use that position to try and diminish um, the stigma for others and to try and make a call also for others to, to be attentive to how their colleagues feel. It's not about us, but the UN is not an institution to look after itself. It's an institution to look after those who are much less fortunate than others. That's what the UN is about. But having said that, we can't serve those people. We cannot do anything for those people if we ourselves are, are not in a good state of health, a good state of mind. Does the memory of any of your own personal experiences, even after all these years, still keep you awake at night? I often wake up with those memories. It's more in my dreams that some of those memories come back and, and, and make me and make me wake up. 
But I, you know, in this interview, I've described so many painful scenes, but I mean, I have so many incredible memories of human, all the human virtues displayed in the most contrarian situations. Uh, and those thoughts are always at my disposal also to inspire me. So, What are I, some of those virtues that, in particular? Well, let me tell you. I, I was um, the humanitarian coordinator and resident coordinator in Colombia. And we would often go to villages and the villagers would come out and they would bear testimony of the awful things they'd been through. And they would tell you story after story of suffering and, and horror. And then the stories would stop and there would be song and dance. And suddenly the whole village would erupt with music um, and everybody would start dancing. And at first it seemed really totally surreal and bizarre and almost disrespectful. And then I realized this, this was the triumph of, of humanity over suffering. This is, was them saying, we will not be beaten. Life will not be beaten here. I mean, it's just wonderful. And it was the human spirit prevailed and the beauty of the human spirit prevailed against the darkest backdrops. Fabrizio, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. And also, I know that this was tough that you have never really said to the extent that you just did um, all of the things that have happened to you and what you went through. So I'm grateful for your courage to speak out. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you for listening to Awake at Night. To find out more about the series and see photos of Fabrizio at work, do visit unhcr.org slash awake at night. You can find us on Facebook at UNHCR and on Twitter, we're at refugees and I'm at Melissa R. Fleming. You can also follow Fabrizio on at Hochschild F and please spread the word about the series using the hashtag awake at night. If you were inspired and moved by this episode, do subscribe to Awake at Night wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could, could you take time to review the podcast? It would help us spread the word and get more attention to the people who serve humanity. Thanks to the fantastic design and studio teams here at UNHCR and to my producers, Bethany Bell and Laura Sheeter of Chalk and Blade. The sound design was by Pascal Wise, and the original music for this podcast was written and performed by Nadine Shaw and produced by Ben Hillier. My guest next week is a former refugee from Cambodia who found herself working to protect some of the very people who are responsible for killing members of her own family. Hi, this is Melissa Fleming. I'm in Myanmar on assignment and also visiting our team here. But I just wanted to say how delighted I am that my colleagues' bravery, both in the field and also in opening their hearts so publicly on this podcast, has been recognized. We've won a silver award at the British Podcast Awards. 
We're excited to share the stories of even more amazing people in season two. So please do subscribe to hear them first. And if you can, review us to help spread the word.